0: The Way Out Podcast, Episode Sixty Four.
1: In terms of my my childhood, it was a it was a pretty pretty uh, traumatic one. There was a lot of uh, upheaval. There was a lot of uh, violence. Um, <clears throat> I moved a lot. My uh, my parents divorced when I was five, and my mom. Pick me up one day I got in the car with her and the next thing I knew we were in Las Vegas and I didn't see my dad again for I don't even know how long so that was how the divorce was brought to me at five years old I went to uh, 15 different schools growing up there were some years that I went to three different schools I went to three different third grades three different tenth grades so I didn't really have uh, a strong uh, female figure growing up. I didn't have uh, my mom in my life to a large degree. For I think some very uh, critical, you know, formative years, I didn't have uh, a mother's love. And it's interesting because we I've I've talked about it later. uh, How, you know, I the the pinnacle of my using career or what caused my bottom, depending on how you want to look at it, was, in, was, uh, was heroin. And I've heard someone refer to what heroin feels like as it feels like a mother's love. And that really, that really resonates with me.
0: Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12 step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of The Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out podcast is on right now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we recorded an amazing interview with musician and recording artist, Jam Ulker. Jam celebrates three years of continuous recovery today, and our discussion covers the recovery waterfront in only the way a man like Jam can. Jam's humility and spirituality is as infectious as his music. His experience, strength, and hope begs to be heard. Buckle up, my friends, and listen up. Jam, welcome to the Way Out podcast live from chicago illinois thanks for being here man
1: it is my pleasure to be here thank you for having me my friend
0: so uh, tell the way out podcast audience just a little bit about who you are and for those who don't know you already and a little bit about what you do now and then we'll kind of uh talk a little bit about uh um your story
1: sure Uh, So my name is Jam Alker. I am an artist and musician who is in recovery. Uh, My path and my mission in life these days is to use uh, music as a way to help others who are not only those who are suffering with the disease of addiction, but when we get behind the disease, we find that the causes and conditions are always the trauma that's related to whatever happened coming up in your life. So I try to use music as a way to connect with others and create a uh, sort of empathic connection where they see that what they've been through, I've been through similar situations because we can relate through the music that I've been able to create and uh, and share with folks. Uh, so my path has really been about sharing my music with others and helping others to feel that connection that they're not alone with the with the struggles and the suffering that they're going through
0: that's amazing you know one of the uh, biggest i think uh, truths when it comes to music is its ability to be able to communicate and touch people on a level that is difficult to reach in other forms of artistic expression.
1: Well, it's the universal language, right? It's, you know, the, the reason that you're here in Chicago today is because we're doing this concert tonight where there will be people from all different fellowships, all different walks of life, all coming together to celebrate recovery under the umbrella of music, and I don't know any other medium other than music that has the ability to bring together people from so many different walks of life uh, for one common purpose. It's 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 beautiful in that sense, and and, and it's true. The combination of the the uh, emotion that is brought out through th- through certain uh, chord structures or chord progressions, combined with the You know, the poetry and the metaphor behind the words and then the melodies that are put that those words are put to do a certain thing that communicate emotion in a way that I don't believe there's any other art form or form of communication on earth that allows that exact type of expression and connection to happen in such an impactful way
0: the whole really is greater than the sum of the parts in that way, yes, right? And yes. that's just the magic of it. So, Jam, tell me a little bit about your story, man. Where did you grow up, and what was it like being Jam growing up? And, uh, you know, uh, uh, give us uh, give us some insight on what it was like to be you when you were uh, growing up.
1: So, you know, I don't have... Uh, a unique story among those of us who, who suffer from this disease in terms of my my childhood it was a it was a pretty pretty uh, traumatic one there was a lot of uh, upheaval There's a lot of uh, violence um, <clears throat> I moved a lot my uh, my parents divorced when I was five and my mom picked me up one day, I got in the car with her and the next thing I knew we were in Las Vegas and I didn't see my dad again for I don't even know how long. So that was how the divorce was brought to me at five years old and uh, moved a lot from one parent to the other, Uh, you know, certain amount of like I said, uh, neglect, a certain amount of physical abuse uh, was connected with that. I went to uh, 15 different schools growing up. There were some years that I went to three different schools. I went to three different third grades, three different 10th grades. And finally, uh, yeah, that my sophomore year, I was living with my dad out in Colorado and you know, he he and I are very similar. And so at that age, we were not seeing eye to eye. And uh, so I ended up uh, leaving, living with him and moving to Chicago to come live with my mom. As sort of began a relationship with her again, because in the in the previous uh, eight years to moving here to live with her, I had only seen her twice. So I didn't really have uh, a strong uh, female figure growing up. I didn't have uh, my mom in my life to a large degree. For, I think, some very uh, critical, you know, formative years, I didn't have uh, a mother's love, and it, it, it's interesting because we—I've I've talked about it later. Uh, how you know I the the pinnacle of my using career or what caused my bottom, depending on how you want to look at it, was in, was uh, was heroin. And I've heard someone refer to what heroin feels like as it feels like a mother's love, and that really that really resonates with me. Um, with what I didn't have as a child and what the scars and the trauma that that created inside of me and the different things that I, different self-destructive behaviors through my life that I can look back on now and realize that a lot of them had to do with trying to make up for that trauma. Excuse me. And that idea of, um, you know, heroin being compared to the feeling of a mother's love's man, that hit me hard the first time that I heard that. know, I've never heard that before, but from my
0: experience, Jim, and, you know, and my mom died when I was 11 years old, mm-hmm. so you, 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 I connected with that piece of your story so intimately when you relayed that you didn't have your mother's love, at, you know, really times when you really maybe most mm-hmm. needed it, right? Yeah. And... You had all of this change and all of this upheaval, which I can identify with. And I think a lot of people that are either in active addiction or alcoholism or in recovery mm-hmm. can definitely identify with the turmoil, the upheaval, the loss, Yeah. and not having the tools at that age right, right, to be able to deal with that loss mm-hmm. and grieve it and to... Uh, and even people that do have a lot of support and tools struggle mightily with those things. And for you, it definitely it, it sounds like you just didn't have those tools, man. So when drugs and alcohol come into play, did that did that give you some sense of control, some sense of I can manage my feelings, I can, you know, what did drugs and alcohol do for you? during this time
1: yeah so I think I was somewhat of a once I had the ability to you know grasp hold of my life and take responsibility for things and have some control over my life I I definitely became a control freak and tried to control everything because of the lack of control growing up so I don't think that drugs and alcohol were a way to attempt to control it. I I look at it more as what I've learned in recovery is that control is an illusion, that that I control nothing. And so what I ended up doing was using drugs and alcohol to numb myself to that defeat of not being able to control everything or anything and continuing to try and continuing to run up against the wall, but still believing that maybe somehow I would figure out a different way to be able to actually control things, and then that didn't work, and then that didn't work. And so I was constantly being defeated and drugs and alcohol became a way that I numbed myself to that defeat.
0: Do you remember the first time you
1: drank or used and how that made you feel? Yeah, I, I, first time that I got blackout drunk, I was eight years old. Um the first time that I smoked weed was the first time that I also did uh cocaine. I was 9 years old. Uh, almost everything else I had done by the time I was 13 or 14 uh whether you know uh mushrooms, acid, um you know it was a little later on that I was uh, introduced to to ecstasy and things like that because it wasn't really around at that time, but yeah, I had, I had done all the Drug experimenting at a very early age, but you know a, a lot of that had to do more with uh, with just I think a curiosity at an early age to just you know try these things that were exciting or different or taboo. And, and of course, you know you don't know. You see the older kids that age that are experimenting with things, and you think that it that it's cool, and nobody knows that they're an addict until it's too late.
0: Bingo!
1: Right, so it was it was fun until it wasn't fun anymore. But that took a long time. So in my in my twenties, you know, playing in bands and things like that. Uh, I was able to what I call party without the consequences being uh, too great, and certainly living in that lifestyle, you know, made it easier to be able to justify uh, the partying that was the rock going and roll on. Lifestyle, absolutely, man. right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. So. Uh, I was, I, I was still able to, you know, do the things in my 20s to be able to remain relatively successful, you know, made, made a few records, did a little bit of touring, had some, you know, music out there, did all of the, you know, hedonistic things that you do when you're out there doing, living that lifestyle. And it, it really wasn't until the end of my 20s when I was uh, finally introduced to heroin that I was really, that was when I was brought to my knees.
0: When you're partying and you're living this lifestyle, for me in the beginning, it was a lot of fun, Mm -hmm. and it was exciting, and it made me feel a way that I couldn't feel any other way, right? So I say often, drugs and alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself, Right. I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. And alcohol was definitely my first love.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was a love affair, right? And I and, and, and I uh and I engaged with alcohol as often as I could. Being younger, alcohol was harder to get. Mm-hmm. Right? So drugs were, mm-hmm. you know, weed and I think it's much, much easier to get. My next-door neighbor was a dealer, right. right? I could get anything I wanted from him mm-hmm. at a moment's notice. Yeah. It, you know, it was a lot more difficult to get alcohol in my teens, right? Mm-hmm. Um mean, that switched, obviously. As sure. you get older, there's a liquor store and a bar everywhere, mm-hmm. right? So uh it, it definitely came back to that. Um, once you tried heroin and... Um, that brought you to your knees. Tell me about that. Tell me Tell me how that happened for you.
1: Well, it was a progression, right? Just like you were talking about it. At first, it's fun. I mean, I, I, I did it, and I kept doing it because I loved it. I love the way it felt. See, did you have a, a, an idea when you first did it that this might
0: not be good, that this might not be a good idea? Because I, I remember certain times when I would do things, mm-hmm. right? And way, way, way back in the back of my head, you know, I I knew I probably shouldn't be doing this. I felt very similar to the giant Oreo shake I had last <laughs> night at Fellowship <laughs> Jam, very similar. Yeah, yeah. I probably shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. this,
1: but I want to in the worst way. Yeah, we're addicts, right? We're alcoholics. We do those things. It was, it, it's, those things were exciting me when i was eight years old should i not be doing it yeah so i'm gonna do it when i'm nine years old should i not be doing it yeah that's so i'm gonna do it and then you know deciding in high school you know what i'm gonna go you know move into the city and i'm gonna become a rock star is that like the best vocational decision no i'm gonna do it and all of these things that i was was doing were working out for me. I was living this lifestyle, and for the most part, the lifestyle was working out for me. And, and I and I made some money, and then after doing the music thing, I started a record label. And, you know, being out there making music, I started a record label. Uh, I built my own recording studio, and these things were going well, and I was partying the whole time that I was doing it. Now, I hadn't been introduced to heroin yet, but if it was... You know going out at night and doing cocaine and drinking or you know ecstasy every now and then or a- any of these other things i was doing them and i wasn't ending up homeless and that doesn't make me a better addict than the next guy i'm just saying that i was able to function at that point with what i was doing so even though Maybe there are people who, oh, I can't do this. My ego at that point was so big that I believed I could do anything and I could get away with it. So when I was finally introduced to heroin, my ego was so inflated and so overblown, and I had money at that point, and I had done all of these things, and I was feeling myself, and I just thought that I could hang out and party like that, with that, like I could with anything else. And God, was I wrong. So...
0: You talk about, you know, sort of the rock and roll lifestyle. I think that's interesting because, you know, if you've got a nine to five, it sort of limits your ability to be able to uh, uh, function differently, right? So, um, you know, it sounds like you didn't have a ton of consequences until you met heroin. Correct. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, that lifestyle uh, uh, in the music
1: industry sort of enabled that, Mm Yeah. Yeah, it, um, it, it 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 enables it in a way, it encourages it in a way, but I also was, uh, I guess you would refer to me as a as a functioning addict. So I was not the kind of person at that stage that th- that once I started to use, I was not able to keep up with my responsibilities. Right. Uh, and there are some that are like that. And again, it doesn't make me a better or worse or more successful addict than the next person, just just different. So some of the consequences that would fall upon other people did not fall upon me because m- my use kept me motivated and kept me doing the things. I just kept up with the responsibilities that I needed to to in order to remain successful in what I was doing up until heroin. And then even in the beginning, the first few years of using, you know, I was... I was rocking, I was yeah. doing great things um, until all of a sudden, you know something changes. Now you you had mentioned the um, you know the what was what was different about uh, heroin than, than the other things. and um, you know it brought me a level of comfort inside and and sort of a calming that i wasn't able to find through through other means like you know there's there's a there's a book that we all uh read in in one of the the fellowships that refers to us as you know restless irritable and discontented bingo right so yeah, i tell this story a lot i feel like i came out of the womb uh like white knuckling it right like just that if, if you're a dry drunk yeah you're not working a program yeah. you're not in recovery yeah. um uh, yeah. You know, I feel like I came out of the womb that way, just restless, irritable Irritable. and discontented. (laughs) And my whole life I was miserable like that and all of these things. So I I had, you know, I had some, you know, some girls, not a lot of fame, but a certain amount of fame and attention and and money and all these different things. But I was still miserable Mm. Had all Mm. of these things that I thought that I wanted as a kid and growing up. And, and again, that hole that was inside of me, trying to fill it, you know, the, the lack of a mother's love, trying to fill it with more and more girls. Oh, this girl, she likes me. If this one likes me, then it's going to fill that hole or the attention is going to fill the hole. Whatever that thing, I had that hole inside and that hole could not be filled up with these outside things. That God-sized hole, right? A lot of people refer to it as a God-sized hole. So, because I knew nothing about how to work a program, because I knew nothing about recovery, all I knew is that I was miserable and I kept grasping. Because, we, you know, we grow up with television saying, buy this and you'll be happy. Consume this and you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Do this and then you'll be happy. And we believe this this lie of consumerism. Look this way yes. and you'll be happy. Right. Right. So, so... I kept doing those things. I, I, I believed that lie of, of commercial consumerism and still was not happy. And then what started out as just more partying with heroin became this amazing way to numb myself finally to those feelings. I heard a, a great therapist once say, you know, that, that opiates are a painkiller, but it's not just a physical painkiller, it's very much of an emotional painkiller yeah. as well. And I, and I connected with that on such a deep level. It finally quieted that thing inside me. It didn't fill the hole, but it numbed me mm-hmm. to all of that pain that I was feeling inside because I didn't know how to fill that hole. Mm-hmm. So that was really the thing that heroin did for me and why I held on to it as tightly as I could, even after it wasn't fun anymore, even after the consequences in a negative way, uh, outweighed the what it was doing for me. At least at, at what I perceived to be positive, I clung to it because it was the only thing that I knew in the world that would kill that pain I was feeling inside.
0: And I can relate to so many things you just said there, Jim. You know, I didn't sober well, mm. right? Without a solution, I just don't sober well. Yep. I still don't. If yep. I don't have a solution, I don't sober well. I get restless irritable and discontented and at some point I will reach for that solution that I know works at least temporarily I to you know money um sex drugs yeah you know whatever it was that I tried to put inside of me in order to make myself feel okay didn't work they all failed me Right. Mm-hmm. I even had myself as that drug. Right. Like ego, and and uh, I failed me. Yeah. You know, they all failed me. Mm-hmm. But the one that's th- the the one that I clung to. The longest was alcohol. And I feel the exact same way about alcohol as you feel about heroin, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So when we talk about that drug of choice, it's really like a romance. It's really like that. Yeah. It's really like this is the one thing that I cannot live without. Yep. I cannot. Yep. Because without it, I will not be able to tolerate life on life's terms. I cannot. Right. I can do it for a little while. Mm-hmm. For a little while, if an external pressure forces me, right, uh, work or um, uh, a relationship or uh, uh, the threat of losing my kids or whatever it is, there can be an external Mm -hmm. source that can force me to live without it for a period of time. But I will find a way. to justify getting that back into my life it's so great find a way so help me god without a solution Mm -hmm. i will find a way to get that right back into my life
1: you you mentioned that uh you that we cannot tolerate it and you know I, i i think about all of the times that i home detox myself and in my career of using in that that detoxing from heroin is, is a very painful painful process and I probably did it at home on my own somewhere between 50 and 100 times and it is a very physically painful process and dangerous too dangerous not as dangerous as alcohol but right. it is dangerous so you know you talk about the inability to tolerate it and I've thought about it my I had a very high threshold of of tolerating physical pain, the number of home detoxes I went through, but then I'd go back out into the world and would last two days, three days, four days tops because I had zero ability to tolerate the emotional pain, Bingo. right? Bingo. So all of that other stuff, I, the, the, the horrible pain of a home detox, the physical pain is horrible. And I suffered through that time and time again. But as soon as I got out there into the real world and that emotional pain came, nope, I had no tolerance for the emotional pain. And, and, and you said, I don't know how to do, this is so overwhelming, the concept of being able to live in this place and tolerate this for more than a day or two or three days. It, when you're in it, and if you haven't been in it, it's hard to understand. It is so incredibly intolerable that, that unless you have that other solution, going back to numbing yourself, is almost a necessity. and 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 you know, I like the fact that we're not focusing on it being about alcohol or heroin or anything else because it doesn't matter. It really this is doesn't. just the tool with which we're killing ourselves. just like if it was a gun or a knife or a rope or anything else, it doesn't matter, right? We're talking about getting to the causes and conditions that lie beneath it that cause us to numb ourselves in whatever way we numb ourselves. That's right., yeah. that's
0: right. And that's why I firmly believe that the substance, is um, is absolutely cosmetic mm-hmm. in this man. I mean, we all have our drugs of choice, and they all, for one reason or another, mix with our physiology right. in order to make us feel a certain way. And so we gravitate to one toward the other based on who knows what. But they all do the same thing. And when I hear some people talk about heroin, it's like how I talk about alcohol, right. how other people talk about cocaine, mm-hmm. and how others talk about meth. Right? right. Doesn't. Matter
1: doesn't matter. Just
0: straight doesn't matter. You know, I wanted to touch on something you said you came out of the womb, restless, irritable, and discontent. and uh, and, boy, is that resonating in my head right now. You know, one of the things that's really uh, key in my own story is fear. And
1: mm-hmm. you know, when you talked yes. about causes
0: and conditions, right? Yes. you would have asked me before I got sober, before I entered recovery, If I was a fearful person, (laughs) I would have laughed at you. Like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But when I did my four and five and truly understood how much fear had played a role in all of the things that I did. Everything. Everything. Literally. And, you know, I came out of the womb fearful. Yep. And not even normal kind of fear, Jim. Like, like dread mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. fear, right? I was always afraid, even as a child of things. Like, really, really, really life and death kind of fight or flight kind of fear, yeah. irrational fear. Mm-hmm. You know? And that persisted all the way throughout my using career. It was fear, fear, fear. Fear of either losing something that I already had or not getting something that I thought I needed yep. in order to be okay, mm-hmm. right? And you know what? The biggest fear in my using career was not being able to get my drug of choice when I needed it. Yeah. Or if somebody, God forbid, got in the way of me and my drug mm-hmm. of choice, right? Me and my booze, oh, oh, hell no. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because you talk about that text that we all use Uh, that contains that solution for us. And it talks about us being wonderful manipulators, Mm -hmm. right? And we will be silver-tongued devils to try to get what we want. We can be charming, and we can be eloquent, and we can be endearing, and all those things to try to get what we want out of somebody, right? And when we realize that that's not working, at least for me, and I don't know if it was like that for you, it would, I would churn like a like on a dime mm-hmm. and I would become vicious and I would become angry and I would stop at nothing to get what I wanted. Nothing. nothing. And it was all driven by fear.
1: King baby. Right. right. That's another right. thing that we learn about. This idea of king baby, we don't get what we want and stick a bottle in our mouth, right? And you do whatever you need to do. The, You know, it, in my recovery, I, I try very much to to not be in a place where I have too much you know, guilt or remorse about what I've been through. And yeah, I think that uh, you know, I, I participated in those exact same behaviors. I try to remember that that manipulation or then the anger as a result of it were what we perceived at the time really as necessary for our survival. Correct. And when you're in it, it's all about survival Correct. at that point. So we... Yeah, you know, I, I speak to parents a lot of people who are struggling with this disease and I and I make sure to let them know that, you know, your child is not a bad person. They're just making bad decisions as a result of their disease. You're in survival mode. You truly believe that you're in that mode of survival and you'll do whatever you need to do to survive. And, and that means oftentimes doing some really shady things and treating some some people that you know that you love in some in some really, really horrible ways, but the way that I know that it's not about being a bad person, it's about making bad decisions, is that those same people who I hear those stories about the things they did when they were in their active addiction, and I see the kind of human beings they are now in recovery, it shows me time after time after time that these are not bad people. These are people who made bad decisions while they were in their disease.
0: We'll be right back with the rest of my interview with Jam Elker as we pause for this week's edition of Recovery Revealed where we take a closer look at a particular aspect of recovery. Having fun in recovery is paramount to achieving meaningful recovery. And as Jam reminds us in this very episode, critical to the newcomer who is apt to believe being in recovery is dull and boring and devoid of excitement and pleasure. Nothing could be further from the truth. Everyday life begins to take on new meaning for us as we work the principles of this program into our daily lives, which begins to light up our lives in a way we never have quite experienced before recovery. We have the tremendous gift of being part of a fellowship that often makes us fast friends and gives us life giving support no matter where in the world we find ourselves. I cannot begin to express the healing that takes place within us when we allow ourselves to be loved by our fellows in the recovery community, a much-needed salve for our open wounds in early recovery. No more evident was the power of the love of the fellowship than yesterday. As I arrived into Chicago knowing but one person, Upon walking into the rooms of the fellowship here in this great city, I was welcomed with open arms by a loving group of recovering addicts and alcoholics, blessed to take part in a powerful meeting and join my new friends in fellowship afterward. I honestly don't think I've had a better time in fellowship than I did last night. And my heart is full of gratitude for a God of my understanding that allowed me to take the emotional risk to be vulnerable to a group of people I hadn't yet met and rewarding me in a way I have honest to goodness trouble putting into words in a way that does justice to just how amazing it feels to love and be loved. These friends will be rocking their socks off at a call to arms, second annual benefit for The Recovery House. Tonight at 7 p.m. here in Chicago at The Latvian, I urge anyone in the greater Chicagoland area to come out and support this wonderful cause and show that we can indeed have an absolute blast in recovery. Now back to the second half of my interview with none other than Jam Elker. Missing up.
1: I have a great friend who's a therapist who specializes in addiction treatment and she said that she's heard it explained for those who don't understand addiction to imagine that someone is holding your head underwater and you're about to run out of air and the struggle that you will go through because you know if you don't get that air you're going to die when we're in it that is how it feels. What happened is I had a a lot of success, I had a lot of money, and then all of a sudden it started to go away, or I kind of doubled down on the numbing behavior. And so the money was going and then, so uh, you know, two, $300 a day habit was nothing at that point, then it started to become something and I slowly started to lose everything. Uh, losing property, uh, selling off my studio equipment, the, the record company went away, the recording studio went away, everything that I had started to go to the pawn shop. And I really began to, to lose everything. I was in a deep hole of depression and addiction and hating my life. And, and to be honest, I, all I did was numb myself on a daily basis. I went to the west side of Chicago. I picked up heroin and I used enough knowing that that day it could potentially kill me. And I didn't care. Either I was going to be high and numb for the day, or I was going to be dead and numb forever, and I didn't care which of the two it was, as long as I was numb for the day.
0: Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Jim... I love you for saying that, man. I love you for saying that, and the reason uh, it, that's so just so true, and it, it cannot be overstated. Right? It's physiologically, drugs and alcohol in an addict, an alcoholic, take a a a more superior place than food, mm-hmm. than sex. Yep. Then it, it it is the prime correct. Yeah. It's one correct. just
1: one. Almost tiny step below air, but almost as important as air. So
0: if something stands in the way of that, we're going to do whatever it takes, right? Because I believe I need that. I believe it to my innermost core that I need this. I
1: have a great friend who's a therapist who specializes in addiction treatment, and she said that she's heard it explained for those who don't understand addiction to imagine that someone is holding your head underwater and you're about to run out of air, and the struggle that you will go through because you know if you don't get that air, you're going to die. When we're in it, that is how it feels. That's an amazing analogy. I love that analogy.
0: Mm-hmm. Great analogy.
1: So it sounds insane it if does. for a person who does has been through it. That sounds insane that it would be that strong of a desire, but it's the truth. That's correct. It is that strong.
0: It is that strong. And imagine, yeah, exactly. Somebody get in the way of that, mm-hmm. right? Right. What
1: you would do? Do whatever it takes
0: anything it took yep. anything it took so tell me about what it took for you Jim, in order to reach a point where you could begin to recover you, sure. you met heroin you, you were managing it for a while it sounds like fairly yes. successfully if yes. you can use that as a you know uh, contradiction in terms mm-hmm. but nonetheless you were managing it and still being able to you know do some of the things that you wanted to do yes. in your career and other things um when did you stop being able to manage it? Which, you know, is that that step one, right? Mm-hmm. Like our lives became unmanageable, right? Right. Um, when did it start to become unmanageable for you? And, and, and how did that parlay into you, into you being able to do what it took to begin to recover?
1: Sure. So what happened is I had uh, a lot of success. I had a lot of money and then all of a sudden it started to go away. Now I, I had gotten into doing some real estate rehabbing properties and then the market turned in the mid 2000s. And so that started to make some of the money go away and also some of the trauma in my life got upped. And so I became even more, I kind of doubled down on the numbing behavior. And so the money was going and then, so uh, you know two, $300 a day habit was nothing at that point. And then it started to become something and I slowly started to lose everything. Uh, losing property, uh, selling off my studio equipment, the, the record company went away, the recording studio went away, everything that I had started to go to the pawn shop, and I really began to, to lose everything. <clears throat> uh, and then I just went into a hole for a number of years, and uh, it, it's not important to get into the, to the specifics of it, but I was in a deep hole of depression and addiction and hating my life, and, and to be honest, I, all I did was numb myself on a daily basis. I went to the west side of Chicago, I picked up heroin, and I used enough, knowing that that day could potentially kill me. And I didn't care. Either I was going to be high and numb for the day, or I was going to be dead and numb forever. And I didn't care which of the two it was, as long as I was numb for the day. That went on for several years. Uh, Then, you know, there were ups and downs. Of course, it wasn't all just complete, uh, horror. My, my wife, uh, stuck with me through it, which was amazing. Uh, I, I got a job, just a a regular job that I, that I hated working for the man and just paying, you know, making enough, had a small period of, uh, of recovery for a few months, not working a program, really not even recovery. I was abstaining, uh, got a job, then believed I could start doing a little bit here and there, as like you know, use like a gentleman, <laughs> and then that started me back up for several years. And it was I got on a, a, a Suboxone maintenance p- plan that I would go on and off of, using about seventy percent of the time Suboxone, maybe thirty percent of the time. And then in that process, I would kept you know I'm going to finally stop, and this is when I went through the fifty home detoxes, sure that this would be the last one. Then I'd go into the real world for a day or two and couldn't deal with it. Then my wife got pregnant. So, I was so happy for the obvious reasons of having a child. On top of that, I was like, there's no way I'm going to use anymore once I have a kid. It was the final line in the sand. Again, not having worked a program, not knowing that those types of things don't actually make you stop. These
0: these extra... Right. right.
1: So, still thinking that, okay, this was going to be the thing that would get me to stop. Okay, great. So, once I have a kid, for sure, I'll stop. Right. Right. So... Child was born, again, I'm working a regular day job at this point, uh, hating my life. I get two weeks off to be able to be home in the in, in the bubble of, of having a newborn. My wife and I and my child are there for those two weeks. I've detoxed, I've got it out of my system. Um, I'm sort of you know finishing up uh, withdrawing and going through the detox, everything. My, my child is born, for those two weeks, I'm gonna be cleaned up, everything's gonna be great, start a new life. So after two weeks, I went back to work uh, I lasted three days back in the regular world. On the fourth day of work, I sat in my car, realizing that I had no idea how to live anymore without being high. And sat in my car for about two hour two hours, screaming, punching the steering wheel, crying. Uh, I can't use anymore, I have a kid now, there's no way that I can do this. And then the voice came up on my shoulder and said, dude, you can't do your job unless you're high. You have a kid now. You can't lose this job. You can't do the job unless you're high. You have a kid, you have to keep the job. We need to go get high. And I gave in to that voice. I went to the west side of Chicago. I picked up, and I was right back to the races. And it was, that was what I consider my bottom. It was at that point that I realized that I couldn't there were no more lines in the sand to draw. I was not gonna be able to figure this out on my own, that I needed help. So that was when I finally reached out to my doctor and 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 started to to get the help I needed uh to change my life around.
0: You went you got to that place that I that that if we're lucky, we get to is that can't use, can't quit. Mm-hmm. Right? I convinced myself over a period of time, could be years, could be months, could be days, could be whatever period of time that is that I can't use, right? Because my life becomes unmanageable right. What I use, right? And so, I quit without a solution, but I quit. Right. And life becomes intolerable. Yes. And then I convince myself that I can't quit. Mm-hmm. And so, that's that rock in a hard place, impossible situation, and in the book that we all love says, now we'll we'll know loneliness like few do. Yep. Now we'll know true despair like only few mm-hmm. really, really do. And you get in that place, and in in and, and and I was there, and you know you're crying. I was crying. Yep. In my at, at that moment. Uh, defeated uh feeling like I was completely hopeless and lost right um, until we have a solution right and so it sounds like you got you got you you got some help tell me how that 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 started for you. how did that
1: help come to you so my doctor, who understands addiction very well, which unfortunately not all doctors do but he he did very versed yeah, in a it blessing that's yeah. a blessing so he sent me to a therapist who specializes in addiction treatment i met with him and he told me i had to go to treatment and i didn't want to go but i knew that i needed to start stop doing it my way and start doing it another way my the therapist that i got was also in recovery and so he um had had figured out something that i hadn't been able to and i was finally willing to listen uh he ended up uh, referring me to uh, Rosecrans, which is a treatment center uh, just outside of Chicago. I went to a 30-day program at, uh, at Rosecrans, and when I showed up, I often say this, that I was finally willing to shut up and listen to what the adults had to say, because I had <laughs> clearly not been able to figure it out on my own. I was introduced to this wonderful book that we all talk about. Uh, one of the first things I was introduced to was page 417 in that book, mm-hmm. and that changed my life. Uh, that whole issue of control that I had tried to wrestle my whole life uh, helped me to realize that that was not the answer that acceptance was the answer and as I started to really practice that acceptance that that pain that restless irritable discontentedness that was happening inside of me as I started to practice some of the principles that I was taught in uh, the program actually started to ease that suffering inside of me and I, I don't think that that, the way that I look at it is not that that hole has been closed or will ever be closed, but I'm able to sit with it and be okay with the fact that this hole exists and I have the tools to be able to be okay with the fact that this is just a part of my story and who I am. So, I went to treatment once, I've been to treatment once, you know, I don't plan on going back, (laughs) certainly I don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but I went because I was finally ready to go And I sat down and I did all of the things that they told me, followed all the suggestions from the people who had what I wanted. And rather than um, finding the reasons why it wouldn't work, I shut up and just tried it all. And wouldn't you know it, it started to work. And things really started to change for me. And so as I started to feel better and understand what a program in recovery actually meant and how it was actually truly changing my life, I jumped in, you know, with everything that I had. And then the music part of it, right? I brought my guitar with me when I went to treatment and I had a a counselor there who had the, the vision to see that me doing my treatment work as songwriting might be something helpful to me rather than just filling out worksheets. So... You know, I I had numbed myself to all these difficult thoughts, feelings, and emotions for so many years, and I decided I wasn't going to get high anymore, so these feelings were going to come up, and I had to figure out a way to deal with them, and so I started to write songs about all the things that I was going through, and that process of, of healing and therapy for me, of being able to work those things out through songwriting... Uh, completely changed the trajectory of my life not only in terms of my own healing but as we've talked a little bit about the things that i'm able to do now to be able to help others you know we talk about in 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 this uh program how important being of service is and i've been blessed with the opportunity to really be of service and help people not only just around the country but around the world as a result of social media and my music and the connections that can occur that way uh and all of this started with me going to treatment, having an opportunity to write songs as a part of my therapy and then shut up, get out of my own way and do things the way that they asked me to do it. Go to do a, a 90 and 90. I did it, get a sponsor. I did it, you know, work these steps that we've talked about. You know, I did it, get involved in the fellowship. We were hanging out last night doing There's fellowship. hell of a time. Yeah, uh, service, you know, chairing uh, meetings, going and speaking at treatment centers, speaking at high schools, doing what I do with, with music, all of these things, as well as therapy, being involved in a meditation program. I jumped in and did all these things because it was working. And the other way was not working. And it's completely changed my life around in ways that I would have never imagined. I mean, I don't know if we mentioned, maybe you did at the beginning that today is, you know, my three-year anniversary in recovery. And what an amazing three years it's been.
0: That's amazing. That's a, it's a, it's an absolute 100 percent unadulterated
1: miracle. Miracle, it is. It just is. Yes.
0: And so, congratulations on three years. I can't even uh, begin to uh, explain the um, the glow that comes from this man right now. Yes. When he's got his three years of of recovery. And one of the things that you've said that I think is so imperative. It's so. True in my own recovery is the action piece. Everything. Right? So it wasn't about waxing poetically about steps. Yes. It wasn't about trying to have a power share at a meeting and Mm. feeling like a recovery big dog and trying to become famous in an anonymous program. Right. It was about doing the things that other people did who had what I wanted. Yes. And I just did them. And I didn't even understand a lot of them at the time Mm -hmm. when I did them, right? Like, I don't see how this even makes sense, but I'm going to do it because I I, I can't. I I know that other way doesn't work. I, I know. I've exhausted it. It doesn't work, right? It left me broken, miserable and in a place I never ever ever want to be again right Mm -hmm. so I'm going to try this other way even though it doesn't make sense all the way even though I feel a little goofy being on my knees in the morning and at night Mm -hmm. right even though these things feel a little awkward a a great friend of mine in my home group always says it's like pet a cat backwards (laughs) you know it feels like that right and but then I get to judge it The results, and that's what I love about Joe and Charlie. I listen to Joe and Charlie, and they always say, "Don't judge the process; judge the results." Yes. Right. Yeah. Just do these things, right? Okay, and then you can be a great judge of the result Mm -hmm. if you do these things to the best of your ability. Okay. Yeah. And things will start changing. Mm -hmm. And you'll begin to realize all these things that you started doing that didn't make sense were a collection of spiritual activities that are designed to create a sense of wellness and acceptance within ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? And establish a connection with a power greater than ourselves, a God of our own understanding. And that power, that connection allows us to be able to, at least me, allows me to be able to live life on life's terms
1: one day at a time. Right, okay. and I think that i I I'm so on the same page with you that, on that, and the thing that I wanna to add to that that is important for, you know, uh, for me to remember is that I have to do those things and I have to not be doing them because I'm expecting a certain result, because that'll ruin it every time, because then I'm gonna get disappointed I'm going to start getting resentments again. Just do it. Do it with with no intention set for it to turn out one way or the other. But just doing it I don't know what it is, but it happens. But as soon as I'm like, okay, now I need to do this because it's going to turn out like this. Nope, it, for whatever reason, the universe has set it up so that it doesn't work that way, <laughs> That's true. right? It's That's this true. ultimate cosmic Correct. joke. Like, go right. ahead and try to plan it. It's that whole is an illusion. Go ahead, do this with a plan of it turning out that way. Let me just laugh at you when you try to, you know, do it for me. Right. Just, just do the next. That's why that simplicity of do the next right thing, you know, Follow along with the people, you know, who have what you want, do what they're doing. Don't worry about the results and it just happens.
0: Leave the results up to the God of your understanding, right. your higher power. Yep. Leave those results up mm-hmm. to that. Right. Right. And I focus on the action. Yep. And that's such an important facet. So I'm glad you said that because it isn't about building an expectation that, you know, if I do this I'm gonna get this. It's mm-hmm. not about what I get. It's right. about what I give. Yep. Okay? I don't concern myself nearly as much today with what I'm going to get. Yeah. But I do concern myself a whole lot more with what I'm going to give. Mm-hmm. What can I give to you? Yeah, right. Because that's what I believe the God of my understanding wants me to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wants me to be of maximum service to the people around me. And if I do that, then... You know, the rest of it sort of takes care of itself, right?
1: Mm Yes. And it's it's strange. You know, it's that, that concept of, you know, is there true altruism? Because if you are engaging in what the concept of true altruism is, you get so much in return when you're not expecting anything in return. So then the question is, well, then you are getting something in return. So are you really not doing it, wanting something in return? But that doesn't necessarily matter. What matters, for me anyway, what matters is I just keep doing things for people. And I know that person can't do anything to pay me back. And then this bigger thing is the thing that pays me back. Right. I don't want that person to give me anything in return for the things I'm helping them with because I'm getting these rewards spiritually. It's keeping me spiritually fit. It's keeping me in a place that all of the money all of the fame, all of the girls, all of the other bull that I thought was going to make me happy, none of that ever made me happy. But this thing, giving to those who I know can do nothing in return for me, gives me so much peace, serenity, happiness, uh, purpose in my life in a way that I never thought was going to be possible. That's Everything. It is the secret to life. It
0: absolutely is 100% that secret. And if I can uh, instill that in every facet of my life, then it literally changes everything. You know, I, I, I always say that the God of my understanding didn't change the world. The God of my understanding, by virtue of me establishing a connection, clearing out the wreckage, mm-hmm. right, and being able to connect with the God of my understanding through a series of simple but very powerful actions on a daily basis allows me to be able to be of maximum service to those people right so uh and the god of my understanding changes me yeah that's the that's the secret mm-hmm. right like it he doesn't change the world, the world's still the same bad shit still happens mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but I change, yeah. And because I change, what I put out into the world is different. Yeah. So what gets reflected back to me Mm -hmm. is different, right?
1: Absolutely. That's
0: that's the miracle Mm -hmm. of it, right? Mm -hmm. And if I can do that on a daily basis, then my relationships change. Yes. And the people around me benefit. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of ripple effect. It really is. That goes on, right? You talked about acceptance. I love it. I repeated it like Rain Man. Yeah. Like the first... 60 days of my recovery, all yes. six months, let's be honest. Yes. It was like everything to me. Yes. Everything. It yeah. brought like this sense of calm and peace. Yes, And I, you know, still know it by heart because I still repeat it when I need it. Mm-hmm. And it helps when nothing else worked. Yep. That worked. Yep. You know? And so I, I recommend that for, uh, as a tool for you guys. Uh, if you're feeling restless, irritable and discontent, page 417 of our favorite Um, A book that's big is really, really, really special.
1: It's my jam.
0: It is. It really, really is. It's great. Speaking of jam, we are going to jam later on this afternoon at uh, uh, the Latvian, and uh, it's going to be an amazing benefit, Uh, so talk a little bit more about that uh, jam, if you would. Um, here's your time to uh, um, to uh, uh, you've got uh, you've got ten minutes to do whatever
1: you want. All right. So the uh, this is the second annual benefit for the recovery house here in Chicago. I did one a year ago to help raise money for this club that uh, you know. Houses meetings of all the different fellowships and and also meditation meetings and is just a place that provides support and services for addicts and alcoholics in in an amazing way. It's a place that when I came out of treatment, uh, I did a lot of my first 90 meetings in 90 days there. It's a place that I call home. Uh, It is definitely a place that helped save my life. Uh, there was a, a financial issue there last year. I started thinking, man, I wish there was something more I could do than just put you know five bucks in the tray. I was like, wait a minute, I can put on a benefit concert. There is something else I can do. So we did one last year and it was successful. But in the years since then, uh, things have taken off in my music career to you know in in an amazing way. So I was able to do something even larger this year. So what we did is uh, we rented a we rented a hall to be able to make it a completely sober event. I uh, brought in some of the most amazing musicians in recovery from around the country. I've got uh, Joe Nestor coming in from Florida and Ram Rem One, who's a hip hop artist, coming in from Baltimore. All, all folks in recovery. Uh, my good friend Jordan Rice from here in Chicago is going to be performing as well. Uh, we rented the hall we've uh, made it another benefit for recovery house everyone is getting together tonight for us to celebrate recovery through live music there there are a lot of events uh, recovery events that are you know dances or banquets or raves or things like that but there's not a lot of live music uh, venues that are completely sober so that was something else that was important to me was to be able to create these opportunities for people who like live music to have sober events So we created this event, I wanted to do it tonight because it worked out this year that my three year anniversary was on a Saturday night. We were talking about doing the benefit in October. All of these uh, stars sort of aligned and we brought the thing together. Uh, I also wanted to figure out a way to get people who are early in recovery to come out and be a part of this event there There are so many people who I hear are first coming into the rooms who have this illusion that we don't have fun in recovery, that there's nothing to do that life is over if you're not going out, drinking, or getting high anymore. So, If they come into a room where there's a rock show going on and there are 200 people in there all in recovery who are rocking their asses off it's going to completely blow away that myth in their mind that illusion that we don't have fun in recovery so I wanted to get as many people early in recovery out to this event as possible so I started thinking about how do I get people out and it's one thing to just invite them out but I thought another incentive would be better so I did a. I put together a raffle where anybody who's living in a sober house or a recovery house who comes out to the event, it'll be $10 at the door, or pay what you can, and when you come in, you'll be entered into a raffle, and if you win the raffle, I'm going to pay $250 towards your rent at your recovery house.
0: That's amazing, $250. I'm putting this podcast out just so you know. I'm putting it out right after we hit end awesome. record mm-hmm. here, brother. So Ooh. this is going to go out to the masses Great. before the show, awesome. right? So. So. So come one, come all. If you're in the Chicagoland area, come to the Latvian. Yes. Okay? And you can just Google that. I Googled it, and my Google Foo isn't uh, as good as probably y'all's is. So uh, get your Google Foo out and Google the Latvian, and we've got Jam Elker and Rem1 and Joe Nester yes. and
1: who else special G- guest G- gutter souls is going to be there ah. rem one is going to be there Jordan myself Joe Nester who's an amazing artist uh, you can also find the information on my website which is my name jamalker.com j-a-m-a-l-k-e-r.com on the event page you'll see the information for the show tonight if you're interested in coming out Um You know, please come out and support this amazing cause and celebrate recovery with this community. You know, this is so important to involve yourself in a community once you're in recovery. And this is just a great opportunity to be a part of this larger fellowship under the umbrella of celebrating music in recovery.
0: And I'm definitely going to be putting that in the show notes, jamalker.com. If you want to reach out to Jam, you can go to jamalker.com. Yes. If you've got any questions, if you connected with a piece of Jam's story that really made a difference for you, uh, he'd love to hear it. If you want to reach out to share at wayoutcast.com, I can also make sure that Jam gets the message. Uh, We are going to be interviewing Jam uh, briefly before he goes on yes. tonight so that's going to be uh, uh amazing as well and i'm going to put out a little special sort of uh pre-stage interview segment as well uh post this so uh that'll be amazing maybe we can get some of the other uh, performers on there yes. as well and we'll see what happens so we're just going to keep it you know sort of loosey-goosey when we go out there and uh um, yeah, I said
1: Lucy Goosey.
0: You out just loud.
1: literally just said Lucy Goosey. Well,
0: you know, it's time to be done, Jam. Thank you so much, <laughs> man, for being on the Way Out podcast. You are a miracle. You're an inspiration, and I'm so glad that we got to meet.
1: I'm grateful and honored to be here. Thank you for having me, my friend. Peace out, brother. Peace.
0: Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.